It's the Victorian Variety Show. Fisk's patent airtight metallic burial cases are for sale by M.M. White, Undertaker, Southside Pennsylvania Avenue, near corner of 3rd Street, Washington, where cases of all sizes can be obtained and funerals attended to with economy and dispatch. These cases can be sold as low as good wooden coffins and can be furnished ready for use in 30 minutes from the time the order is given. These metallic burial cases have been used for the remains of the following persons. Mrs. Madison, Honorable D. Kaufman, Honorable R. Rantoul, Honorable O. Fowler, Honorable J.C. Calhoun, Honorable H. Clay, Honorable Daniel Webster, Commander Morgan. This is the Victorian Variety Show podcast, my bi-weekly look at phenomena from the Victorian era that I find weird, wonderful, and or worrisome. Some of the topics I look at easily qualify for two of those categories. And, if I were to think about it, there's probably at least one that qualifies for all three. But that would require an explanation I'm not ready to make today but I'm comfortable covering the ones that fall into at least one and often two categories, especially if they fall into the weird category, which I want to emphasize does not mean bad or anything negative. When I use it, it just means it's very different from what's considered quote unquote the norm today. My name is Marissa and the short piece I just read is an ad for Fisk's patent airtight metallic burial cases, which, I'm not going to lie, I have had my eye on for a while. And every once in a while, I see a photo of one of them in an Instagram or Facebook post, so I know I'm not the only one who's fascinated by them. And in general, one area I've been looking to focus on more is Victorian-era inventions. As I've mentioned in a number of previous episodes, there was a lot of scientific and technological innovation going on during this period, and many people pursued scientific pastimes, such as pteridomania or fern fever, which I covered earlier this year. So you know that during this period, there was a widespread interest in science and innovation, regardless if it was done as a career or as a hobby. But most of the inventions from this period that I focus on will most likely be ones that may have us scratching our heads today, because I think they're the most interesting ones to research and talk about, and hopefully for listeners to learn about. I am going to read you the patent description for the Fisk Coffin and include a link to the document, which includes sketches, in the show notes in a moment. But I wanted to give you some background on the man behind the device first. According to Scott Warrenosh of the Iron Coffin Mummy website, Almond Dunbar Fisk, you heard that correctly, his first name was Almond, who was born in upstate New York in 1818, originally worked as a stove merchant in Manhattan, but started building metallic burial cases that were airtight in the mid-1840s, seemingly in part as a response to the death of his brother William in Mississippi in 1844. As Warnosh explains, quote, 
prior to refrigeration or embalming, there was no practical way to return the remains of a loved one home to be laid to rest among kin. And, as a result, the deceased were often buried among strangers by strangers. This situation was considered one of the most regrettable circumstances that could befall a family during this profoundly spiritual period. A distant death denied family participation in funeral rituals, and the privilege of assisting in the commencement of the greatest spiritual journey one could make." End quote. Seeing a need for a coffin that could preserve the body of a loved one who died far from home long enough so that it could be shipped back to its loved ones and stored for an extended period of time in hot weather, Fisk put his knowledge of airtight stoves and boilers to use in converting a furnace into an airtight coffin, for which he received a patent in 1848. According to Wikipedia, Fisk unveiled his cast-iron invention in 1849 at the New York State Agricultural Society Fair in Syracuse and the American Institute Exhibition in New York City. And soon after that, Fisk went into business with his father-in-law, Harvey Raymond, and their company, Fisk and Raymond, started producing the coffins in Providence, Rhode Island. Cast iron coffins were considerably more expensive than coffins made of other materials, despite what was in the ad that I read at the top of the show. For example, in the cast iron coffin that was too creepy even for the Victorians, Allison Meyer notes that the metallic coffins ranged in price from $7 to $40, and Wikipedia says they sometimes cost $100 or more as opposed to a pine box, which could be had in the mid-19th century for prices as low as $2. However, these cast-iron coffins became popular among wealthy families and elite politicians, and word spread especially after the funeral of Dolly Madison in July 1849, when the former First Lady was laid out for a public viewing in a Fisk and Raymond coffin in D.C., Unfortunately, the success Fisk experienced was short-lived. First, a small foundry that contained thousands of dollars in machines, tools, and inventory, which the company had established on Long Island in New York, was destroyed by a fire in the fall of 1849. Then, in October of 1850, Fisk died at the age of 32. And, according to Warnosh, different sources have reported different causes of death, including chronic lung and bowel inflammation, complications from fighting the foundry fire, and complications from saving a young boy from drowning in the East River. In case you are wondering, Warnosh suggests that Fisk's remains were shipped back to his hometown in one of the coffins he designed. So, now that we have a better idea of how the idea for this coffin came about, let's take a closer look at the item itself. I will be posting the illustration on the platform that we're now supposed to refer to as X, in case you haven't yet clicked on the link to the patent, titled US5920A, or, as it appears on the application, Letters Patent Number 5920. To all whom it may concern, be it known that I, Almond D. Fisk, of the city of New York, in the state of New York, have invented a new and useful manner of constructing an airtight coffin of cast or raised metal. 
and I do hereby declare that the following is a full and exact description thereof. The objects kept in view in the construction of my metallic coffin are such as to cast or form it with the least possible quantity of metal, by means of which lightness is obtained, and this I effect, in part, by making it to conform as nearly as may be with the form of the human body. The pattern of the coffin consists of two shells, an upper and a lower, which join together in a horizontal line in the center, the two parts being of the same or nearly the same depth. The two shells are more or less curvilinear in nearly all their parts, and they may be made as thin as the running of the metal will admit, while they have more than sufficient strength to resist any pressure to which, in use, they are subjected. In the accompanying drawings, figure one is a top view, and figure two a side elevation of my metallic coffin. Figure three is a cross-section thereof in the line XX of figure one. Figure four, a cross-section in the line YY, and figure five, a cross-section in the line ZZ. These sectional views show the curvilinear form of the two shells. AA show the line of their junction, each being furnished with a flange or projecting rim for the reception of screws or rivets, the juncture being made tight by means of the well-known iron cement, or by any other cement which may be preferred, and which will answer a like purpose. In the drawings I have represented a cross B on the breast of the coffin, and I have also shown handles CC of a particular form, but these, of course, have not anything to do with the construction of my coffin, and may be used or omitted at pleasure. It has been the practice, occasionally with cast metal or of composition coffins, to place a round plate of glass, cemented airtight, over the face of the deceased. A metallic plate covering such glass is shown at D. From a coffin of this description, the air may be exhausted so completely as entirely to prevent the decay of the contained body on principles well understood. Or, if preferred, the coffin may be filled with any gas or fluid having the property of preventing putrefaction. Having thus fully described and represented the manner in which I construct my airtight cast or raised metal coffin, what I claim therein as new and desire to secure by letters patent is the manufacturing of coffins of cast or raised metal when made substantially in the form described and represented, that is to say, corresponding nearly to the human form, and, in combination therewith, the making of the coffin in two nearly equal parts, united horizontally by the flange, substantially as set forth. Almond D. Fisk. Witnesses, L. Williams, J. S. Fisk. Warnash points out that these uniquely designed cases had some clear benefits. For example, the round glass plate covering the face of the deceased allowed friends and family members to view the faces of their loved ones one last time and hold a public viewing without exposing anyone to cholera and yellow fever and other diseases that dead bodies were often thought to spread 
or to the odors typically associated with decomposition. And I think it's worth stressing here that embalming did not become widespread until after the U.S. Civil War, nearly two decades after Fisk's coffins first appeared on the scene. The coffin's sturdy construction also deterred would-be grave robbers from stealing bodies of the recently deceased and selling them to medical schools, which, Warnosh explains, is kind of ironic because two New York surgeons Fisk consulted with while he was testing out coffin preservation techniques, Valentine Mott and William Francis, are thought to have dissected bodies of stolen corpses in learning their traits. Warnosh also describes Mott as an avid world traveler who'd written on Egypt and collected mummies. In my quest to find more information to back that claim up, I found an article on medicalantiques.com that notes that Mott left behind, quote, one of the most extensive and valuable museums of relative anatomy, the occupation of his entire professional life ever brought together by a private individual, end quote, on his death in 1865. And that museum was destroyed in a fire in 1866. I personally find it interesting that in researching this topic, I've come across not one but two highly destructive fires. But the point I was trying to make is that there's evidence that Mott's knowledge of Egyptian sarcophagi served as inspiration for Fisk's coffin design. I also have some very strong feelings on the treatment of mummies during the Victorian era, and I am planning to address that topic in more depth in the near future, which is why I'm not discussing it more now. However, Meyer's article also claims that the coffin's shape, which resembled a quote-unquote shrouded corpse, was unsettling to some people, suggesting it gave them an otherworldly sensation, quote, like some industrial age warping of ancient Egypt, end quote. There were also reports of fist coffins exploding due to the fact that bodies need room to move, if you will, as they break down, but airtight coffins molded in the shape of a body didn't allow for much in the way of wiggle room for gases and other unpleasantries associated with decomposition. According to an 1868 letter to the Cincinnati Enquirer, which is included in an article by Kate Sherrell called Victorian Iron Mummies, the Fisk Casket, quote, an iron coffin was procured, the body placed in it, and the lid sealed and screwed down in the usual manner with a thick glass plate over the head. To those who watched the loved face through tears, there soon appeared a singular change. The veins of the forehead began to swell, and soon stood out like cords. Then the face began to swell, and soon the eyes partly opened, and the lips fell apart, giving to the face a wrathful, horrifying expression that was painful to look upon. These changes continued until the dead seemed to be striving to breathe and speak, and strange noises were heard inside. Women shrieked and fainted, and at last a cloth was thrown over the glass, and persons were forbid looking in. During the night of the second day, if I remember correctly, an explosion occurred, accompanied by the sound of broken glass, and it was found that the plate over the face was shivered, and the room filled with the most sickening stench. The dead body was horrible to look at, and it required no active stretch of the imagination to believe that life had returned, and a struggle ensued. End quote. 
Meyer also suggests that a number of these assertions were refuted by the manufacturer, who claimed that in thousands of cases, bodies were transported in the coffins to Europe and other parts of the world with no issue. And, on the one hand, while it's easy to imagine a manufacturer rebuffing accounts that don't serve their best interests, it is also easy to imagine how the possibility of explosions supplied abundant inspiration for urban legends of the time. So, what became of the Fisk coffin? According to Meyer and Shirell, reports as to when the coffin itself stopped being produced range from around 1853 to 1860, but that conflicts with the letter I just read you from 1868, regardless of whether that incident actually happened. But other sources I've looked at suggest the production of these coffins even continued into the 1870s and 80s. Warnash notes that Fisk and Raymond were in debt following the 1849 foundry fire, and eventually, the company was purchased and renamed William Raymond and Company. That company grew and evolved over the decades that followed, furnishing caskets for Abraham Lincoln and his son Willie, President James A. Garfield, and King Alonzo of Spain and expanding to manufacture a wider variety of cast-iron products, including sewing machine parts and possibly hearses. Warnash further explains that when the foundry shut its doors in 1889, the iron coffin industry was declining, and sheet metal caskets, similar to those commonly used today, were becoming more popular. I can't really tell you at this point when production of Fisk's sarcophagus-like coffin ended, but I am going to refrain from saying that it was because many people of the time were creeped out by the design, or at least that that was the main reason. Although that's entirely possible, going by something like the title of Meyer's article, it also seems conceivable to me that many people today would find the Fisk coffin so disturbing that we assume people in Victorian times must also have been disturbed by it. Or, as Shirell asks, was the Fisk coffin, quote, new? Absolutely. Was it useful? Arguably. Was it popular? Not in the slightest, end quote. When I read something like that, I'm like, well, maybe that was because people were creeped out by it. But could the high cost of this model as compared to coffins made of other materials also have played a role? In A Grave Warning About Iron Coffins, Chris Woodyard cites newspaper stories from the late 1860s in which people who'd had loved ones buried in fist coffins later feared that said loved ones hadn't been dead at the time of burial, finding that the glass window over the face had been broken on having the body exhumed, or again, as in the 1868 newspaper article that I read a few minutes ago, they claimed they saw a loved one wake up inside one of the burial cases and try to escape and fail. Although Woodyard admits that these stories may have been urban legends based on the fear of being buried alive, aka taphophobia, that was common in Victorian times, which, by the way, I did an episode on back in 2021, I find stories like this more convincing in considering how creeped out people may have been by these coffins, but still, given the massive changes in the funeral industry and the increase in mass-produced coffins that occurred in the decades after the Civil War, I believe a number of factors might have played a role in the phasing out of the Fisk coffin. But now, I would really like to know what you think. 
And if you have any more information on this topic, I would absolutely love to hear it. Email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on the platform formerly known as Twitter at twitter.com slash victorianvariety1 or on threads at threads.net slash at marissadf13. Even though I have to admit I haven't been great at social media lately, actually I've been kind of terrible at it, I've been going through one of my phases where I need extra energy to keep up with my day-to-day, and when that happens, keeping up with social media is a bit too much for me. But I do miss interacting with people there, so hopefully that will change soon. But anyway, if you would like to support the show financially, there are a few ways you can do that. You can become a supporter for as little as 99 cents U.S. a month at podcasters.spotify.com slash pod slash show slash marissa hyphen d96 slash support. Or you can make a one-time donation at buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 on my link tree at linktree slash the Victorian Variety Show, or if you're listening on the Good Pods app. And finally... I would greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, Podchaser, Audible, or wherever you listen, as that will help this podcast reach more listeners. Thank you so much for listening to my show and for all of your support and wonderful feedback. It makes me feel really good to learn when an episode of this show resonated with listeners, and I do hope my peek inside the Fisk airtight metallic coffin held your interest. I plan to be back in two weeks with a brand new episode, but for now, I'm going to leave you with a poem about a coffin, written by a poet who wrote a number of poems about death. In fact, I read another poem of hers, Because I Could Not Stop for Death, in my first episode on death during the Victorian era, which was also in 2021. That poet is Emily Dickinson, and the piece I'm going to read for you today is titled A Coffin is a Small Domain, and I chose it kind of to give you an alternative way of thinking about the Fisk coffin, even though I can't say what kind of coffin Dickinson had in mind when she wrote this. A coffin is a small domain, yet able to contain a citizen of paradise, in it diminished plain. A grave is a restricted breadth, yet ampler than the sun, and all the seas he populates, and lands he looks upon. To him, who on its small repose bestows a single friend, circumference without relief, or estimate, or end.